This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair, number 41, March 29, 1983. Some time ago, in one of the Easy Chairs, as well as in the book notes, I dealt with uh, Simon's The Ultimate Resource, a particularly fine book. In the course of it, I cited Dr. Simon's arguments with regard to the benefits of immigration. Now, both our book notes, our reports, our easy chairs circulate far and wide, and I did hear from several people, mostly those who are not on our mailing lists, objecting to the favorable reference to immigration. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes before I go any further on the subject. Now, I'm smiling and half laughing because every time the subject of uh, the problem with Aliens and immigrants comes up. I'm reminded of my years on the Indian reservation. And the Indians used to get quite a kick out of the talk of white men about the trouble with all these immigrants who are coming into the country. That was quite a laugh to them. After all, I think their attitude could be summed up by the cartoon I saw once which showed some Indians watching the first white men land in the Americans, and one turned to the other and said, there goes the country. Well, the fact is, the preeminence of the United States comes precisely from its immigration history. We have a very diverse element here. Moreover, that diverse element represents an unusual element. Let me cite one example. As each of these waves of immigrants have come over here, they have been despised and uh, abused by the others who forget that they came here as immigrants. I can recall when I was very, very young, an older man who himself came from an immigrant background, talking with hatred concerning the Irish. In fact, he rated them below Negroes, only he didn't use the word Negroes. Now, that attitude was once quite prevalent. And that attitude greeted Germans, it greeted uh, uh, Scandinavians, it greeted the Dutch, it greeted the Italians, it has greeted every immigrant group that has come here. But the simple fact is that while these immigrant groups came over here, often very backward in their knowledge of uh, sanitation and other things, they represented an initiative that was unusual. Consider what it would be like to leave a country, go somewhere where you would have to learn a new language and remain a foreigner all your life because you would speak with an accent. That took initiative. I mentioned the Irish a little earlier. An interesting fact is there is a difference between the Irish in Ireland and the Irish in the United States. Why? Well, the Irish who came over here in the potato famine and afterwards were people who were ready to make a break, ready to make a new start. That took initiative. It took a special kind of person. Moreover, the English landlords often took some of their tenants to the docks and put them on board ship 
without any money, just paid their passage and sent them to the United States to get rid of them. Sometimes these were troublemakers. Other times there were people they didn't like. So we did get in every wave of immigration some people who were somewhat of the criminal element. But we also got people who at home were regarded as troublemakers because they were the ones with a strong bump of righteousness, of indignation at injustice. The Irish in this country have an initiative that the Irish in Ireland do not have. We got the cream. We got the cream of every country because they were the ones who were ready to break with the past and to start something new. Remember, one out of seven Swedes, approximately, during a period of years, migrated to the United States. Those people, very quickly in this country, rose from a very low level to a very high level. Look at the present. There's a great deal of hostility out here in the West to some of the Cambodian and Vietnamese who come here, the boat people. It's true, they have many primitive ways. They have a great deal to learn. They're not happy about them in San Francisco because some of these people being hungry are capturing other people's pet dogs and killing and eating them, which wouldn't make me happy either. But the fact is, consider what it took for these boat people, for example, to leave. It meant putting out in rafts and boats of the most primitive sort knowing that out there there were pirates lurking who would get sometimes three out of four boats that left and killing every last person and robbing them of all their possessions. But these people loved freedom enough to get in those boats and go and say, the risk is worth taking. Now, I submit that in a generation we're going to be very proud of those people of every one of these groups, legal or illegal, who come into this country because they want to go where freedom is. This is why the United States has become a great power. Now, I'm willing to grant that we've had a great many bad eggs in these waves of immigration, but we have also, through evangelism over the years, reached those people and turned them into outstanding citizens. There was a time in the first half of the last century when police did not dare go into the Five Points area of New York except with a sizable number, a platoon, because it was so deadly a criminal area made up of immigrants, northern European immigrants. What changed that? Why, it was the evangelization of the big cities by the churches so that they went into the slums, they converted those people, they made them into God-fearing citizens. Now, the people who complain about the immigrants are those who sit back and contribute nothing to reaching out to these people. I submit that this country became great because of immigrants. I'm proud of my immigrant past. I think we all should be. We're a nation of immigrants. That's our greatness.
and we have to recognize our roots and appreciate them. Well, now to go on to something else. Not long ago in my travels, I ran across someone who had a name derived from classical history and tried to apologize and explain for it. The father or mother had a great love for history and had dug this name up. Well, you don't have to apologize for names like that. To me, I told the person, my name comes out of the 8th century B.C., first and last alike. And I'm very proud of both my name, Rusas, both syllables accented equally, please, and Rushduni. I like names that are interesting, and I think it's sad that so many of those names are disappearing. Now, I recall a name that older people used to have occasionally when I was younger. And I ran across it recently in somebody's family background. Zenobia. Ever encounter that name? Z-E-N-O-B-I-A? Zenobia. Yes, Chuck, you've encountered a Zenobia. Well, it comes from a very remarkable woman. Zenobia was the ruler of Palmyra. Now Palmyra was nothing. It was just a little village in the desert, but a, a succession of very superior rulers converted it into a trade center and into a great power. It became such a power it was able to take on Rome itself for a while. Now, that's something because it's comparable to Vallecito, and I'm a mile out of Vallecito, and you can pass Vallecito and not know it because it's a store, a post office, a school, a church, and a handful of houses, and not much more. By going about a mile in every direction from Vallecito, or maybe further, maybe two miles, they come up with 250 people. But uh, it isn't much. Well, it would be like Vallecito taking on the United States and winning for a time. That was Palmyra. And it was Zenobia who was the most remarkable ruler. Let me read you just a few passages from a study by Stuart Perone, Caesars and Saints, about Zenobia. Zenobia was a woman of great beauty, a human Diana. She rode, hunted, marched at the head of her troops. She kept great state and banqueted from gold plate and jeweled goblets. Even her helmet glittered with rare gems and golden ornaments. Zenobia could drink a bumper with her generals, yet so chaste was she that she would have no intercourse with her husband except for appropriation. She spoke Greek and Egyptian fluently and was sufficiently acquainted with Latin. She studied history and wrote her own textbook on that of the Levant. The philosopher Longinus found a home at her court. He was a Neoplatonist, a former pupil of Ammonius Saccus and of Origen. Thither, too, journeyed Paul of Samosata, bishop of Antioch. Thus, says Abel, the new Julia Domna had no cause to envy the court of Rome, for Plotinus had worked on his theories under the benevolent regard of the emperor Gallienus and his wife, Salonina. Well, she not only made her uh, country independent of Rome, it had been a subordinate 
satellite state, but began to conquer very considerable realms. Finally, Aurelian was able to overthrow the power of Zenobia, partly because Aurelian uh, intercepted and fought off some of her allies, such as the Persians, then bribed the others into neutrality. And so, to continue, Palmyra was doomed. Resolved in one last desperate, humiliating appeal to the Persians, Zenobia slipped out of her beleaguered capital, mounted a dromedary, and made off toward the Euphrates. Just as she was about to cross that fateful river, she was captured by a Roman troop that had been sent to pursue her. Palmyra opened its gates. Shapur, now nearing his end, was awed into acquiescence. Zenobia and her son, Wabalath, became the captives of Aurelian. Palmyra, perhaps because it too was a center of sun worship and its temple, one of the most splendid in existence, was spared. Returning to Emesa, Aurelian held a formal trial of Zenobia and her court. Alas, the queen's resolution now failed her and she condescended to purchase her own safety by incriminating her ministers. Longinus met his death with a dignity that put his patroness to shame. Aurelian now set out for the west accompanied by a long train of captives, which included Zenobia and her son. After crossing the Propontis, where most of the Palmyrenes were accidentally drowned, being desert dwellers, they could not swim. Aurelian hastened north to repel yet another incursion of the Carpi. Well, he gave Palmyra over to uh, pillage after they revolted, and from that day to this it has remained a poor village overshadowed by the relics of bygone pride. Egypt, too, was chastised. The walls of Alexandria were raised, and new levies imposed on its citizens for having dared to interrupt the Roman food supply. Zenobia was, of course, taken into captivity and included in the triumphal march into Rome. Zenobia was decked with jewels and bearing golden chains, so heavy that she had to be supported by her attendants. She had hoped to enter Rome in one of those chariots as an empress. Now she ascended to the citadel as a captive. To her also, Aurelian showed himself a kind conqueror. He settled her in a villa at Tibur and gave her in marriage to a Roman senator. Nearly 1,600 years later, an Englishwoman would reverse her romantic fate. Jane Digby, once married to Lord Allensborough, who would have made her vicerine of India, preferred to unite herself with a Sheikh of Palmyra, with whom she lived in bliss until the end of her days in 1881. The story of Zenobia is imperishable. It sheds a sunset luster over the bleak panorama of Roman decay. But from the princely matron at Tiber, uh, we turn now to her generous-hearted conqueror, and the story goes on. Well, so much for Zenobia. Now I want to turn to another matter, a very interesting book. I'm not recommending this for purchase because this, while it is a superb book, is of interest primarily to medievalists and to architects. The book is 
an abridgment of uh, three volumes published and very quickly out of print entitled The Plan of St. Gall by Walter Horn, Ernest Horn, and Lorna Price published by the University of California Press. The cost of this abridged one-volume edition is $55, by the way. Now, it is simply an abridgment of the three volumes of Architect's Plans published not too long ago, in 1972, to be precise. At that time, it created a sensation because it gave us a knowledge of the medieval era that did not previously exist. St. Gall is a church, a Benedictine church, in what is now Switzerland. It was uh, built by the Benedictines. The plans were... uh, drawn on parchment between the years 1820 and 1830 from a lost original as the work continued. About 200 years before, the first uh, Benedictine uh, monastery had been uh, built there. This was the permanent uh, monastery, church, and center. The plan, when it was discovered, gave us a first-hand glimpse of so much of the medieval life that people did not know existed. Work on this, by the way, has been underway since 1844. And as more and more of the material has been discovered, it has been a landmark for historians. Now... What is it that is so unusual about this book? Well, it is, just as I said, a sequence of uh, drawings, architects' plans, you might say a city planner's plans, because the monastery was a small city. It was a city dedicated to work and to prayer and to meeting every kind of human need. There was a church built. In fact, four, well, I won't go into that now. The Church of St. Gall is a beautiful sanctuary which still exists. Then you have the monk's cloister, you have the refectory or the dining area, the novitiate and infirmary, and much, much more. Then you have an entire area for health services because the monastery took care of the sick in the area. As a result, you find a remarkable uh, series of plans for the hospital facilities. Uh, Very attractive uh, buildings, by the way. The Abbot's House. You have the House for Distinguished Guests and its Kitchen, Bake, and Brew House. You also have facilities for every kind of traveler. 
for pilgrims and paupers, and the kitchen, bake, and brew house for all such. All people who came and went were taken care of. There were workshops and quarters for the abbey craftsmen and artisans. There was a brew house, a bake house, grain storage, grinding and crushing, all these in meticulous plans, an orchard and garden and a gardener's house, the uh, fowl keeper's house, hen house, goose house, all plans very carefully presented, very attractive buildings, by the way, and so on and on, house for sheep and shepherds, and much, much more. What you had here was, in other words, a monastery which ministered to every kind of human need. Now, I'm going beyond this book to deal with historical data. When I was a student, one of the kinds of things I read in history books was how much land the medieval church owned some of the best land in France or in Germany or in Spain and so on and on. Well, there's no question the church owned a great deal of land, not as much as the books claim because the historians are humanist to the core and are bent on uh, misinforming us. They give us a warped perspective on Christianity, Catholic and Protestant. They were right in this, they were the best lands, but they were the best lands because the church made them so. The lands that were mostly given to the church, especially in the earlier centuries, were marginal or useless lands. The reason being that the Lord or the king who gave those lands knew that the monks were going to develop that area settle people into it, and make it highly productive. Let me tell you one thing. And by the way, much of what I'm telling you now, and far, far more, is in a book I'm working to complete in the next couple of months on the doctrine of the state in terms of the church and state conflict. I hope to have it out by the end of the year or early next year. Do you know who built the dikes, first of all, in the Netherlands? It was monks. They went out and, having been given that marginal seacoast land that was worthless, and high tides took over, they diked it, they drained it, they manured it, and developed it, and then went out and brought in more land with dikes. The building of the dikes for generations was the work of monks, and it was then given to the people in many cases. Many areas which were nothing but swamps and marshes, or deserts, or rock piles, were given to the monks, and they would patiently work to subjugate that land and develop it. And it's no wonder that the church lands were the most attractive in all of Europe. They had been once the worthless lands that no one wanted. But they were given to the church, and not always very generously, 
They were given to the monks in return for providing among the peasants they settled there so many for military service or in return for so much in the way of food. So these lands were not only subjugated and became the dwelling place of people who lived better than they lived elsewhere or on the nearby properties of lords and of kings, but they also provided all the welfare of the medieval era. They provided the hospital services. They provided free housing for paupers, for travelers, and so on. It was a remarkable work that was done. Moreover, this was done in terms of biblical law. People talk about canon law, and they forget that canon law is, or originally was for centuries, simply biblical law. Canon means rule. And they were applying the rule of God's scripture. That's what canon law meant. Applying the rule of God's word to all of life. Now, while I'm on the subject, and uh, it's, I think, important to take a little time going into this. Once these lands had been developed and improved and made into show places, you had kings and lords coveting them and doing everything to gain possession of them. First it was by taking one of their younger sons and making them the abbot or the prior so that they could control the property and its wealth. Well, this was one of the reasons why Hildebrand imposed sacerdotal celibacy on the church, to make it impossible for this kind of thing to take place, and then fought against uh, lay investitures and the like. I won't go into that now. But it was to break the control of the lords over these church properties that monks and churchmen had developed and made productive. Then the next area of effort was to try to corrupt the church. And you had everything done to make the worst possible men bishops and then popes. And this was done systematically. In my book on uh, the church and state issue, which will be titled The Theology of the State, I have quite a bit on Marsilius or Marsiglio of Padua, one of the great enemies of Christendom, one of the great enemies of the Christian faith. And the Holy Roman Emperor, Louis of Bavaria, made him Archbishop of Milan. That was the kind of thing that took place. And this was systematically done to corrupt the church. Of course, you had, about the same time as Marsilius, Gallicanism develop in France, and the same kind of thing developed in other countries. All of the countries which are traditionally Catholic to this day. That's why they didn't revolt. They already controlled the church in their realm. Meanwhile, the Holy Roman Empire had its own dream. One Catholic historian, Frederick Heer, has called attention 
without criticism, by the way, because he's something of a liberal, to what the Emperor Maximilian, just before Luther, in fact, his dates and Luther's uh, meet, planned to do. Maximilian was looking for an excuse to depose the Pope and have himself named the Pope. Then he decided it would be better to wait for the Pope to die and to have himself elected as Pope and to combine church and state into one power because he felt he could do so much more to further the empire if he had the wealth of the church to use. This is why what Henry VIII did was nothing new. It was the common thought of monarchs all over Europe. The so-called Catholic monarchs, which did not go into the Reformation, had already wrested those same powers through concordats with Rome. This was the direction they were taking. They wanted to corrupt the church. They wanted to take over its powers and to exploit them. There wasn't an original thought in Henry's head on the subject. It's interesting that Marsilius, defender of the peace, was translated for Henry's benefit to make sure he had the, all the advantages of good imperial ideology from the medieval era. Well, at any rate, the Church of St. Gaul tells us what the Church once did and what the Church is beginning to do again. The current issue of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, which is not yet in the mail, a few copies have gone out or have been picked up but we're going to get them into the mail this week and next, is already creating widespread attention. In fact, uh, this is a double issue, by the way. If you're interested, send us $9 for it, and we will mail you a copy. I say this because it is already apparent from the demand for this issue that it will sell out very quickly and we will have to reprint. We already have one request for 200 copies. What we deal with there, and we just scratch the surface, is what individuals and churches and groups are doing in the way of Christian reconstruction, meeting every kind of human need and meeting it in the name of Christ and in terms of the Word of God. So some very remarkable things are happening and it's well worth your while to acquaint yourself with this. In the next issue of the journal, we will deal with what is happening in the world of business in the same uh, vein, reconstruction. Well, now to a totally different subject. One book that came out not too long ago, published by Thomas Nelson Publishers, uh, 1982, William J. Murray, My Life Without God. He is the son of Madeline Murray O'Hare. And he describes the insanity of that 
family background, the hatred, I should say, for the faith. But he has a couple of chapters or uh, passages I'd like to share with you. Uh, this with Valerie, he's discussing atheism and before his conversion. Finally, she asked, and I'm quoting, what is an atheist? An atheist is a person who does not believe in God, any God, not even the old pagan gods. The basis of atheism is found in various materialistic philosophies. Jean-Paul Sartre led to the materialistic view to existentialism, but the final outcome is nihilism, because the whole thing comes down to narcissistic self-gratification. Bill, what does all of that mean? It means if it feels good, do it, because you have only to answer to yourself. I paused and opened a beer. Call it atheism or humanism or secularism or whatever you want. But it all boils down to the same philosophical junk that gave Plato an excuse to be a fag. Is that why you drink, because you're an atheist? Is that what you mean, Bill? I almost choked and put down the beer. Val, I said, I don't know for sure that there isn't some being greater than mankind. I just can't believe in a god who is petty. A god would be truly great for giving good. But I've never run into a god like that. Then, somewhat later, after one episode, Murray writes, One day, while driving home from work, the truth struck me, I thought. There has to be a god, because there certainly is a devil. I have met him, talked to him, and touched him. He is the personification of evil. He is Tom Evans, my mother, and others like them I have known. It's an excellent book. By the way, I shall be putting into the next Chalcedon Report, that is the May Report, the address of a bookstore in Sacramento, which will provide you with any of the books that are mentioned in the book notes or in the easy chair, which are currently available. So I'll give you that address the next time we have an easy chair. Now on to some uh, other subjects. Uh, this from a book which may not be in print now, published in 1979 by Walker and Company in New York, David G. Uh, Liger, L-Y-G-R-E, Life Manipulation, From Test Tube Babies to Aging. Uh, Dr. Liger is a professor at Central Washington University, and uh, he's been a fellow at the American Cancer Society at Case Western Reserve University and at the University of York in England. His perspective is emphatically not ours. Let me uh, quote a couple of things. He believes that scientists should have freedom for life manipulation. And he says, in science we trust. Knowledge is ethically neutral. 
Therefore, we should not interfere with scientists who are acquiring basic knowledge, nor hold them responsible for eventual misuses of that knowledge. Only the applications of knowledge require ethical judgments, and it is only here we should intervene. If you're dedicated to the truth, you have to say that there are no truths not worth seeking. There's much more in that vein, but let me cite just one more passage and a section entitled Reverence for Life, ironically. I quote, Throughout our history we have eaten from the tree of knowledge and we are becoming as gods. With that knowledge has come more and more power to control our lives and the lives of others. Indeed, we have traveled far beyond the point of wondering whether to play God. Now the question is how to do so wisely, unquote. By the way, I should mention before we go on that William J. Murray, who wrote about his family background, Madeline Murray O'Hara and so on, is now a Christian. Now briefly to something else. I'm grateful to John Lofton for sending me a very interesting piece of nonsense from the National Research Council, which is headed, Committee Does Not Find Single Evidence of an Addictive Personality or a Single Cause of Habitual Behavior. This is among alcoholics, heroin addicts, chain smokers, compulsive uh, gamblers, and others. And... Uh, John's note with it is very much the point uh, as to why they can find no reason for these addictive personalities. John writes, when sin is ruled out, nothing makes sense, does it? Very good, John. Well, here is something that uh, I thought was interesting, and uh, I think... Uh, this would appeal to you, John, and to your sense of humor. This is from the Palo Alto, California Peninsula Times Tribune for Tuesday, March 15, 1983. It's about a new organization there, Learning to Live with Herpes. And just to read a little bit from it, it's a long article. If you can't cure herpes, learn to live happily with it characterizes the approach of a new health communications venture called Laughing Buddha Association. Laughing Buddha's way to encourage people to live in harmony with their genital herpes is through a cassette tape, So Celebrate. Herpes is the flowering of a very special phenomenon, says the warm feminine voice on the tape. Acquaint yourself with herpes and ways to deal with it. Sit down and relax, the voice, Amo Garden, co-founder of the venture, encourages. She then continues on the evening practice side of the tape to put the listener through a half hour of breathing and relaxation exercises, interspersed with reassuring messages. Feel the shame of giving genital herpes to others, Garden says, and with the next out-breath, let go of the shame, the guilt, the self-hate. Forgive yourself for having herpes. The other side of the tape, the morning practice, starts off with music 
intermingled with a sound of singing birds. It's designed to send the listener out into the world with a positive feeling. Besides more breathing exercise, the tape gives basic advice, and so on. Well, <laughs> with enemies like this, we don't have to worry. <laughs> Let the dead bury the dead. Well, I'd like to read just one sentence from another very interesting book published in 1981, and again, I don't know whether this is still in print. It was published by Doubleday and Company in Garden City, New York, Going for Broke, the Chrysler Story, by Michael Moritz and Barrett Seaman, S-E-A-M-A-N, and Moritz, M-O-R-I-T-Z. The book is about the rise of the Chrysler Corporation in part, but mainly about the troubles which beset it. I wish someone, by the way, would do a good book on uh, Chrysler. There's one brief biography of him written some years ago, I think in the late 40s, um, about the time of his death. I have that book somewhere, and I enjoyed reading it immensely. Walter Chrysler was a remarkable man. The book was given to me by a man I met at a meeting who was B.F. Hutchinson, one of the top men in the Chrysler Corporation, and himself a most interesting man. But after that first generation of uh, men, Chrysler Corporation came to be governed increasingly by committees. And committees diluted responsibilities. The boards and the uh, committees could compile all kinds of data, but uh, the data didn't mean anything. And so Chrysler, from being uh, one of the great newcomers that in difficult times forged ahead to create a very remarkable automobile empire, began to disintegrate until Lee Yakako, uh, Yakaka took over. And the point that is made in the book and summed up in the concluding sentence is this. The history of Chrysler from Walter P. Chrysler through Lynn Townsend to Lee Yakaka, and indeed the history of the American automobile industry demonstrates that far more than institutions and strategies, it is men and their ideas who succeed or fail. Now, that sums it up. And this is the problem with American industry today. Men built up these empires, and then committees took over, boards took over. Men who are gutless, and men who played it safe and who have had no courage when it comes to resisting federal invasions and in fact wind up adopting a neo-mercantilism and are in favor of the type of economy we have today and are the fat cats 
of those who promise more of the same. I like the story in that book on Chrysler that uh, V.F. Hutchinson gave to me when I was a young man, uh, or let's say a younger man. Uh, when uh, General Johnson, shortly after Roosevelt took office and instituted the NRA and began to lay down the law to everybody, flew to Detroit and summoned all the heads of the automotive industry at a table where he proceeded to lay down the law to them and tell them what they were going to do as though his word was law and they had to jump when he said jump, and he did say that. Chrysler was across the table from General Johnson. And he reached across the table, grabbed Johnson by the necktie, and yanked his chin hard onto the table. And he said, USOB, when you ask me to do something, you say, please, don't give me any orders. We don't have men like that running around nowadays, unfortunately. We could use a Walter Chrysler now. And I think we're going to see some in the years ahead, I do believe that. And we're going to see a lot of them developing. I believe we have a number of men like that in Texas. And in one or two industries here in California. And uh, things are going to happen. Well, now to another book. And uh, I'm grateful to Dan Harris for sending me this, because I read it some years ago, not too long after it came out, in a borrowed copy, and I'm glad to have my own copy now. This is by Douglas Hyde, H-Y-D-E, an ex-Marxist. The title is Dedication and Leadership, Learning from the Communists, published by the University of Notre Dame Press. Now, this is well worth getting, and uh, it's very important because it tells us how the communists succeed, as Hyde says, and he was one. He worked for years in the Communist Party, edited their paper for them in England, and much more. And he said that the essence of the communists was if you became one, you had to become a leader. That's why the party is always a small minority in any country. You were trained for leadership. You sacrificed. And sacrifice became a way of life. And you could not become a Communist Party member unless you were ready to study and to sacrifice. And he said when he took over the Daily Worker, he was amazed at how low his pay was. And then he was expected to give a sizable amount of it back to the party. But he soon realized that this was the spirit that was required, a sacrificial spirit. He had to go out and peddle at a very early stage, communist literature, papers, at a prominent street location. And he said, people despise you and look at you with contempt. And he said, you learn something in the process. 
You learn that you have to stand up for your faith against hostile elements, and it brings out the best in you. He said, I don't know any ex-communist who doesn't long for the kind of life he had as a communist, even though he now hates communists. Uh, communism and communists, because it brought out the best in him, the most dedication. And for communist artists, their best work, their best writings were in their communist phase, not after they left the party, precisely because Christianity or freedom does not demand the same kind of sacrifice. He describes one man in a chapter the story of Jim. He says he was very short, grotesquely fat, with a flabby white face, a cast in one eye, and to make matters worse, a most distressing stutter. So he came and he said he wanted to be a communist, and he wanted them to make a leader out of him. And he said, here was a man who was pathetic to look at, painful to listen to. He had every kind of handicap, short of being blind or deaf. But they worked with him. He attended classes. He studied. As he did, he gained a little more confidence. He made himself an expert in every kind of law affecting labor. They set him out in the open to teach, to preach communism from a soapbox in the park. And he did it. His very earnestness compelled a better attention than with most because it amused the people that here was this man who stuttered trying to preach communism to them. And so, so their sense of fair play led them to listen to him. Step by step, the man gained confidence. At union meetings, he knew more about everything than anybody else in the union, including the union leaders. Little by little, he rose to the top and became a power. Now, Hyde says, we didn't despise him and turn him away. He wanted to be a leader. If he was ready to work, we were ready to train him, and we made a leader out of him. It's a book well worth reading because it does have a great deal to say to us. While we're on the same subject, there, there is an excellent book entitled The Kremlin's Dilemma, The Struggle for Human Rights in Eastern Europe by Tufton Beamish and Guy Hadley from Presidio Press, San Rafael, California. And it is about the various Central European countries which are behind the Iron Curtain. And it deals with the problems of the Soviet Union in trying to control these countries. In the course of this, he does deal with the roots of the total terror that marks 
the Soviet regime and other Marxist regimes. It goes back, he points out, or the authors point out, to Lenin, who said, Every religion is madness. God is a monstrous corpse. Faith in God is a prodigious cowardice. He also said, If we do not cause terror by on-the-spot executions, we shall achieve nothing. It is better to wipe out a hundred innocent people than to miss one guilty person. Terrorism did not begin with Stalin. Lenin, he points out, was a great champion of it. And yet, ironically, in 1970, the United Nations declared a month of centenary celebrations to mark the birth of that great humanitarian, Lenin. This book is very definitely worth your while. Well, I have a number of other things I want to save for a later date because they will take too much time for the very brief time left to us. Just a further word on uh, the plan of St. Gall, the medieval church. Much of the outbuildings at this church and others were subsequently destroyed by both Catholics and Protestants, or monarchs and armies that claimed to be Catholic and Protestant. And as a result, uh, very little survives of the original. And this is why the discovery of the plans created such a sensation. It gave us a full glimpse of what previously Historians had known through the records and not taken as seriously as they should have. The fact is, for example, in England, and this was true on the continent in every country, when Henry VIII seized the wealth of the monasteries, immediately there was a tremendous problem because there was no longer any welfare agency to cope with the problems of the poor and of the sick, the needy, of widows and orphans, and so on. And unparalleled social problems marked the birth of the modern era, because monarchs, Protestant and Catholic, did everything possible to confiscate the endowments, the properties, and the facilities of the churches that were dedicated to taking care of these needs. Now, we have seen in recent years about a hundred homes for delinquent children established in the United States, patterned after what Lester Roloff did in Texas. Consider the implications of that, and then you'll understand why, to his dying day, Lester Roloff was in the courts, and they're still pursuing the case the state of Texas is. This is creating an agency and agencies which cope successfully with juvenile delinquency, 
and will take a major power away from the state. This is one kind of agency among many. And this is happening all over the country, all kinds of groups doing it. Remarkable things happening. And what do you have? You have the same effort on the part of the state to prevent this. They use the excuse, we're trying to prevent something like the Jim Jones episode. But I've said before, and I'll say again, Jim Jones had a state church. He was financed by federal and state agencies until the New York magazine blew the whistle on him he was protected, and it wasn't because they did not know that his hoodlums were beating up on anybody who attempted to leave the church. It was a racket. It was corrupt. They knew it. They never touched him. Congressman Ryan went to his colony not to expose it, but to whitewash it. The trouble was, Jones and his associates were so much under the influence of drugs they couldn't believe his reassurances. And so they killed him. Now, that's the reality. Just as around 1200, because of the power of the church, forces within Europe began to work to corrupt and to destroy the church and succeeded. And the Reformation, I believe, prevented the total de destruction because it split Europe on that issue. Maximilian's plan probably would have been implemented in no time at all, and the church absorbed totally into the life of the state. So again, we have the same forces at work. Well, here at Chalcedon, we're dedicated to fighting those forces. And this is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why our journal has the emphasis it has in this current issue. And I'll have more to tell you about what we're doing in some further easy chairs. Our time is up. Thank you again for listening, and I'm looking forward to our next meeting. Day by day, I think of things to pass on to you, and look forward to this time with pleasure. Goodbye, and God bless you.